Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 46 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. In today's episode, guest host Jason Heath from the popular Contrabass Conversations podcast turns the mic around on me, and we discuss sort of a reflection on the first year of clarinet. Really, there's no other person who could have done a better job than this. Uh, Jason is one of the most compelling people in the whole podcasting industry. He started his show, I think, over 10 years ago, and he's now reaching over a million listeners a year, which is just just crazy. Really, really fantastic job he's done. It's a great show. And even if you're not a bass player, I think there's some really great things you could take away from that. Stay tuned for an upcoming episode with Jason, where he reflects on over 300 episodes of his show in his new book called Winning the Audition, which is to help all musicians get a better grasp on uh, doing and, and achieving their goals in auditions, which, as many people know, is a very important part of being a classical musician. I'll let Jason do the rest of the introduction since I want to give you sort of a feel for his show. I've actually inserted the entire episode within Clarinet. So if you've seen the movie Inception, this is kind of like podcastception here. And now I'd like to introduce you to Jason Heath of the Contrabass Conversations podcast after a brief message from our sponsor. Today's episode was brought to you by Daddario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit D'Addario.com woodwinds. Hi, it's Jason coming to you today with another special episode. Today, we're featuring Sean Perrin, who's the host of the Clarinet Podcast. And Sean recently celebrated his one-year anniversary of podcasting. And we had the idea of doing kind of a lessons learned interview where I ask him some questions. And it was so much fun to do. I thought it would be really cool to put it out on my podcast as well. And I just love conversations like this. It's so much fun for me to geek out on podcasting and interviewing and to talk about how to form good questions, how to research a guest you're going to talk with, how to book a guest, how to keep the conversation going, especially if someone's not very conversational, which happens, that sort of thing. So we dig into these topics and much more like why a podcast, I ask that of Sean, and many other things. He's a great guy, great energy, even if you have zero interest in clarinet, Check out what he's doing. It's really exciting, and I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. Check out his show also at clarinet.com. So here's my first question for you, which is so that so do you listen back to your own show, and if so, like in how? This is actually really funny that you ask this because uh, someone else recently asked me this, and I said, you know, the reason I started the podcast was because I was looking for something like this, and there was nothing like this out there. So although it might seem a little bit weird or borderline narcissistic, my favorite part is actually sitting down at the end and listening to it actively in the way that I would have liked to enjoy it. Because up until that moment, I've either been interviewing and sort of responding in a way that I can develop new questions or I've been editing or I've been writing show notes. And then I finally get to enjoy it and sort of listen and take in what the guest had to offer, which is why I made it in the first place. So. Yeah. That seems weird, but that's uh, almost my favorite part. Well, it's a real different modality, though. Like when you're interviewing and you're active, it's it's so different than actually going back and listening. And like for me, I I oh, do yeah. go I do go back and listen, but it's it's very a lot of time it's like in the car and I'm thinking, okay, I guess I'll listen to my show and I'll like listen and just sort of <laughs> for flow or do, am I editing well? Am I do, do I how's this how does this sound to an outside observer? Uh, do you have you are you comfortable with the sound of your own voice at this point or does it is it like nails on a chalkboard? How is that for you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny because at first um, I, I decided at, at first that even though I was bothered by it, I just it wasn't something I really could care about because it was it was going to be that way that I didn't like my own voice. And I mean, you just have to deal with it because if you want to do this, that's part of it. You have to hear yourself. Right. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, when I first started, I was emulating another podcaster, almost 
um, entirely, like everything from the flow, the tone of voice, the sort of speaking level, the, mm-hmm. the calmness, um, trying to seem like someone different, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and the hardest part, in a way, was realizing that uh, I can't really be like this. I have to find my own voice. Yeah. And that's where it got challenging. And it's funny because once I found my own mentality and way of doing it and, and sounded like myself, it didn't bother me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so listening back to the first, I don't know, even 20 episodes, I think I was really finding what it was going to be like. Yeah. And now when I listen, I'm like, oh, that that I recognize that person. Mm-hmm. So it's not as annoying. The actual physical sound of my voice, it doesn't bother me the way I sound because I understand why I sound different versus when I'm hearing my own voice. Like when you hear yourself, you just hear all the vibrations in your head as well. But when someone else hears, it's different. And I've recorded enough and understood enough to know that when I hear my voice on a recording, of course, it's going to be different. So how can I be bothered by that? It's just the way that it is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like it's like hearing your own playing on a recording for the first time versus, you know, under your ear with the embouchure or like me with the instrument vibrating. And I think, like, wow, is that what I sound like? And then at a certain point, I just realized, like, that's how I sound on bass. And it's the same thing for me with with recording. It's like, well, that's just Jason talking away. And I'm pretty pretty mute at this point. Yeah. It's weird because when I listen back to it, um, I just mentioned that I enjoy listening to it. But I find now that when I listen, the fact that it's me speaking kind of melts away. Yeah. And I'm a, I, I sort of listen to it as this guy is interviewing someone I'm interested in talking to. And ah, he's asking some pretty good questions today. Mm-hmm. Or, man, what, what was that question? That was a bad one. Or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I can sort of learn by critiquing myself, almost like um, you talk about in your book, which we'll get to later. But um, w- when you're talking about how you have to listen and, and adapt based on the way that you've played um, from recordings. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the uh, the question thing is interesting, like formulating questions and having the flow of the conversation going. And that's one of those things I think of it as the easiest skill and the hardest skill I've ever attempted. You know, it's yeah. like it, it's just a conversation like we're having now. But at another level, it like draws upon all of my knowledge and all of my skill to like actually have that conversation. Like I have such respect for the great interviewers. And I'd love to know, like, who do you look to for inspiration in terms of like asking good questions? How do you formulate good questions? That's a great question. And you know, <laughs> the hard, <laughs> the hard part about, um, doing an interview is realizing that it's not a conversation. Yeah. Um, and that might sound weird to listeners, but the thing is, is that in a conversation, let's say that you make a point, I should really respond to that point and, and recognize it and somehow connect it with like, oh, okay, or sure, or, oh, okay, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, in a way that kind of, I don't know, reflects back that I've processed that. But I don't know, I find with interviewing, kind of like what you just did a minute ago, is instead of taking a break to acknowledge the fact that I'd said something, you just started a new thread. Yeah. And that is very important. That's sort of weaving in and out of the conversation in a way that's almost unnatural, but flows to a listener. Yeah. Yeah. it really works. And I, I don't quite understand why, but the book that I read um, originally when I started this, because to be brutally honest, when I started podcasting, I, I, I'd i listened to a lot of podcasts and I knew how to use a computer and do some recording, but I'd never put all that together. And I really didn't understand how podcasting works. So I identified my areas that I really knew nothing about, one being broadcasting, two being kind of actually making a podcast and three being interviewing, all those three sort of relatively important concepts. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I bought books on Amazon. I ordered about 10 books. And this time last year, I sat down and read all of them. And one of them was called The Art of the Interview by Martin Perlick. And he, or Perlich, I'm not quite sure how to say it, but he actually is one of the best musical interviewers of all time. And uh, Bernstein called him, I think, I don't remember the quote exactly, but like the best there is or something. And he's also interviewed Frank Zappa in a rather interesting way. And and his book was really compelling, really short read to, um, have, have you checked that one out? I have heard of that book. It's on my list, but I haven't read it. I, I got to pick up a copy. Yeah, it was, it was really good. And there's some things I kind of disagree with that he said. And one of the things that he said I disagreed with was that you're never, um, you're never the person's friend. Like you shouldn't try to consider them your friend, but given the fact that like, with Claire and Eden, I'm sure with, with contrabass conversations too, the podcast sort of, um, there's a very gray line between your musical career and the podcast. Like they sort of become one of themselves. So if you're networking and even making a new friend through the show, I mean, 
that's that's okay, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but but he saw that as sort of crossing some kind of journalistic boundary, um, and he'd been burned by it in the past, ironically from Bernstein. Okay. And um, <laughs> so I feel like that was a little bit of his own personal experience, kind of rubbing off on the way he thinks about interviewing. Um, and he also, I think, considers it more journalistic than I do. I mean, I'm getting in there talking about clarinet with people that I know. I don't really consider myself a journalist. <laughs> right, right. So, right. There, right. There are journalistic elements to it for sure. But yeah, I mean, there, there are many different styles of interview and many. And, and the more I've done interviews, the more I have sort of paid attention to all the different styles. A couple of people that I've been really into recently uh, Studs Turkle. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Studs Turkle, but no. he's somebody I've admired for years. He he got his start in broadcasting in Chicago. He was uh, burned by the McCarthyism and the communist scare and all that sort of thing, and and started writing these books that are just collections of interviews from regular folks. And I just love his questioning style. And, and I've, mm -hmm. I've gotten so much from him. And then the big one for me has been Tim Ferriss, even though my podcast isn't similar to Tim Ferriss's really at all. I've learned a lot, just how he asks questions and follow up questions. And yeah, it's tough because it's like you said, it's not a conversation. There's a great old Saturday Night Live skit with Chris Farley, and he's, he's like the worst interviewer ever. He has some famous, like, <laughs> you know, Aretha Franklin. I was like, yeah, that was pretty cool when you sang that thing. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's what you don't want. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's it, the, the being able to move through threads. I mean, that's a, that's a skill that takes time to develop. Um, and you, it is weird. I, it's yeah. very musical. I, mm -hmm. I see it like playing a, uh, it's more like chamber music than orchestral playing. Yeah. Um, but I do actually view it as something that I'm drawing my musical skills on. Mm -hmm. And if you'd ever told me when I was in university that, oh, in, in 10 years, one thing that you're going to do is you're going to use these active listening skills mm -hmm. as a podcaster, I would have probably laughed. But but it really applies like the way that you can listen and respond and also listen to yourself and adjust your pacing. And, and I don't know. It's, it's very musical. Mm hmm. Oh yeah, it absolutely is. And and I've even noticed myself it's it's like chamber music. Like if I talk to somebody who has just a I have a pretty up demeanor. I'm a pretty pretty energetic guy. And I'll talk to people who just have a different kind of energy level. They're 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 positive people but maybe like a slower pace and I actually find myself kind of modulating my pace to kind of get in sync with who I'm talking to. I don't know if I do it intentionally, but I just sort of notice uh, how that person is or how they respond or maybe they they're like a little more time between thoughts or maybe they're real real you know just like rapid fire in terms of what they're saying and i listen back and i just notice in my own responses they're they're different from guest to guest that's so weird that you say that because i found um one of the biggest sort of aha moments for me with interviewing and doing the podcast was was listening back to one one day and I, I realized I was editing out a lot of my interruptions mm -hmm. um, and I thought oh it's just Skype Skype's being stupid and Skype is very difficult to work with and sometimes there's lag but but I realized that this person was just more careful and thoughtful than other guests and not that that's a good or a bad thing but they just processed for a moment mm -hmm. and I had to I felt compelled to say something always yeah. as soon as they stopped I was like blah, blah, blah interrupting their idea really and i noticed that wait a minute i should try to adapt a little bit and it is odd how sometimes my personality seems to change i listen back and i'm like oh that's weird i i really was a different person with that uh guest than i was with a different one and i think it's just natural part of conversation part of you know you're you're you just behave differently or respond differently or communicate differently with different types of people and and uh with the energy thing you were talking about, I mean, when I was trying to emulate that other podcaster that I originally mentioned who, you know, sort of gave me the idea for podcasting at all, um, it's Sam Harris. I don't know if you know mm -hmm. who that is, but sure. I, I listen to his show a lot. And, uh, you know, not everyone agrees with his points, but he is a fantastic conversationalist. And um, but he's very introspective and mellow and yeah. intellectual. And this this medium or this discussion topic of the clarinet and, and my personality, it's not that I'm not intellectual or whatever, but I, I get excited about stuff. I, I, I let that come through a bit and I think that that's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. No, Sam, I love Sam Harris and I, I remember listening to a, 
one of these Joe Rogan, I think, three-hour interviews with Sam Harris. He's had Sam Harris on several times. And yeah, just that pacing. It's just like a slower, more methodical, kind of thoughtful, introspective pacing, which is so different from other other people you might chat with where it's a mile a minute. Well, and he his show is very like almost philosophical at times, mm-hmm. almost to a fault. I mean, recently there was one. I don't remember the guest off the top of my head, um, which is odd, but but um, they actually got stuck on a concept. They they were both arguing back and forth about what it what some what it really meant for something to be true. And unfortunately, it unrailed the entire conversation. They talked about it for two hours and then had to end the call. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like <laughs> nothing really got accomplished that they'd set out to do. And and to me, that feels like a sort of a, a missed opportunity. But yeah. at the same time, that's what it's so interesting about his show is that he doesn't get in the way. He doesn't let anything stop uh, his sort of pursuit of what he believes. Mm-hmm. And uh, but again, Claire Neat is different than that. I'm I'm not really arguing a point or trying to prove a concept. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to get information. And if, if something if you disagree with something along the way, you have to just let it pass. I mean, it's it's not a big deal. What could be so worrisome about the clarinet that's, that's <laughs> that would that would stop the conversation entirely? And, you know, I mean. It's yeah. a little different. Yeah, right, right. Well, so I'd, I'd love to, uh, maybe just why a podcast? Like, I don't know, all the things you could have done with your time or directions you could have pursued, what was it that attracted you to the podcasting medium? Um, I think it was simply the fact that I'd, I'd listened to so many, and once I realized... Um, there's a Steve Jobs quote, actually, that I, I can't remember verbatim right now, but he says something like, um, if you were to look, if you were to n- realize that all the things out there are just done by by real people, you would you would do them mm-hmm. like and I, I wish I could remember it more exactly. Maybe I'll try and send you a link to it. But it just really sort of resonated with me one time. I, I did realize, like, wait a second, all the books that have been written, all the things that have been done, all these things are done by people. And that sounds like such a stupid thing to realize, but it's true. And any person can really do what they feel like doing. Um, and I was at sort of a crossroads where I was realizing that I, I didn't want to be a full-time orchestral player. I uh, was no longer in a position where I felt like going back to school, although it, you know, it's always open, of course. Um, but you know, it's a lot of money and it's a lot. Of, I, I'm not, I'm married. I'm in my thirties now. I don't feel like packing up and moving across the country sure. just to get a master's. <laughs> right. Right. So anyways, long story short, the podcast medium just felt natural to me. It felt like something that I wanted to get into. It felt like something I wanted to do. And most of all, I felt the very real need for the podcast. Um, and so I wanted to fill that need. I, I just felt like the, I felt like I was the audience that a podcast uh, I felt like I was the audience that a podcast like this could serve mm-hmm. and that there must be at least, you know, a thousand or ten thousand people yeah. like me that would listen to it. So I well, just went with it. Well, and that's the best reason to start a podcast or start anything, I think, is scratching your own itch. You know, that's yeah. that if 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 you make a show trying to appeal to Anybody will appeal to nobody. If you at least try to make a show that appeals to you, you've at least got an audience of one and probably yeah. a more a bigger. So another quote where this is our conversation of quotes that we can't remember exactly. But <laughs> but um, it's like be careful about what you invest your time in, because if you build something that you aren't really into and then it becomes successful, you've just like created a whole life for yourself doing something you're not really that into. And yeah, I, I've thought about that a lot recently, especially in different, different, uh, career avenues that present themselves. I'm like it either. I'm going to say like, heck yes or no, you know, in terms of what direction. So like for me, the podcast, it's like the sort of show that I want to listen to. And that's what I love yeah. about your show. I love the questions you ask and I love just sort of, and it's been fun, like watching your show evolve since I've been following along, which is about, Eh, maybe six, eight months into your journey. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned earlier your career in the podcast and how it's kind of becoming intertwined. Like, what's the podcast doing for your career? What's it done for your career so far? Well, it's interesting. Before we move on to that concept of finding what you want to do, yeah. I mean, 
another sort of concept I've thought about before is that, you know, you can spend all your time climbing the ladder, mm -hmm. which is great, but make sure you put it against the right wall. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, yeah, right. You know, because right. if you, if you, if you just focus on the ladder, you're going to get up really high somewhere and you're not really going to recognize your surroundings and you might look across the room and go, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. It's that wall I wanted to get to. You know, I'm trying to paint that wall. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh. A sort of a secret reason I started the podcast, which does sort of address your question, <laughs> um, is I had finished reading a book called The 52-Week Job Project, which was ironically also by a guy named Sean. And uh, it just it was weird because I I had gra I'd been graduated for several years. And the book is about a guy who graduates and isn't quite sure what he wants to do. And so for 52 weeks, he decides to try a different job each week. Mm. So for one week, he's a bartender and then he's, you know, delivering something in a truck and then he's working at a summer camp and he tries all these things. And and uh, the thing about it that really caught me was how easy it was for him to get it going after the first couple of weeks. People were calling him, offering him the jobs. And uh, at that moment, I I had been playing around in my mind about the idea of doing a master's. And I thought to myself, you know, what is a way that I could speak to these many people and really decide who I'd want to study with without actually flying down there and paying a lot of money for, you know, the flight and a lesson with each of these people? Is there a way I could give them value mm -hmm. while learning about them at the same time? And this was sort of, of a periphery reason which it came to be. It was kind of a like method to to sort of get the conversation out there, not just so it could help me, but so it could help anybody. I mean, if you're looking to go study with someone and you have Clarinet on your on your iPhone now, you can you can now talk to Michael Norsworthy, uh, Laurie Friedman, Francois Uhl. Um, there are at least a dozen educators and, you know, professors and, uh, you know, Wesley Ferreira. If you're interested in going to those colleges, you can really get a sense of this person for free in a real conversation setting, which is so cool. And I, I have actually had emails of people saying how helpful that is. Yeah. Um, several people have done papers now where they've cited the podcast and then sent it to me. I think that's so cool. Um, but um, it, it, my career, it really is blending with the podcast in sort of an interesting way. I mean, I don't know if it's a way I would have been entirely comfortable with 10 years ago, um, because at that point I still thought I wanted to play in an orchestra full time. But I don't know. It's given me a chance to meet a lot of people and still enjoy my playing at the same time. And um, it's taken freelancing to a whole new level for me. And it's given me so many opportunities to to talk and, and play and meet people. And um, yeah, it's totally it's combined into one. It's, it's to the point where I seanperrin.ca, which used to be my domain or dot com now leads to the about me page on Clarinet because I, I don't have time to maintain two websites and they're kind of the same thing anyways. So yeah. <laughs> why not just run with it, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. What you mentioned about it's it's a win-win on all fronts. That's what I think of in terms of the pot because if you have a student who wants to go to study with one of these professors, well, you've talked to him. You've got the benefit of of chatting with them yourself. It's something you'd want to do with your own time anyway, right? Like I, yeah. th I think of it as a DIY degree I've been doing for the last decade, right? Like my DIY doctoral. Instead of going inside, I'll talk to hundreds of people. And, and so I'm learning all this knowledge anyway. Then you have the added benefit of putting it out and all these people get to absorb and learn about this. And you're helping out that person Mm -hmm. Like you said, oh, if they, if people want to go study with them, they can go listen to 45 minutes, an hour of them talking about what's important to them. And people have asked me, like, is that like taking a lesson with them? And I always say it's really not like taking a lesson. It's it's very different than you taking your instrument yeah. out and playing for them. But it gives you a shared language. You, that student and that person, if you do decide to take a lesson with them, you've you already kind of know their philosophy. You know a little about them, about what what they're interested in music. It's it's just a great place to start. It's a great way to do your research as a student. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's worth noting that yeah, it doesn't feel like a, a lesson per se, and it's not really intended as a, a lesson either. Like although I am looking to learn, I don't feel like a student. If that makes sense, mm -hmm. I try to feel they're equal, so I can talk to them about things without get, you know you don't want to get intimidated. Like if you don't know something, you can't just close up like you might have in second year university. Mm -hmm. You've got to recognize that, you know, you're you're your own kind of professional and active musician and player. And although you always want to learn, you can't live in the student mindset forever. Yeah. Um, 
at least not in the way of, you know, actually being these people's student. And they don't, I don't think they want to talk to me or, or someone like that on that wavelength either. I mean, they're maybe calling to talk about their, their latest album or something. Um, maybe they're like with Wesley Ferreira, who's someone who came on recently. He's got a program where it's kind of a, a, a breathing training program. That's really, really cool, actually. And um, I, I learned a lot about sort of his philosophy of that. And I think any student interested in, in him or his concepts would, would learn a lot. But yeah. I didn't feel like I was in a lesson. And I don't think someone else listening would feel like it was a lesson either. Yeah. Um, it doesn't address your own personal playing. And it's, it's just it is conversation. So how do you book guests? What's that process look like? Oh, very. This is very secret. <laughs> <laughs> Many want to um, know. <laughs> well, I've actually started to make this easier. Um, if someone is interested in submitting a news story or uh, even a guest post now, I'm opening it up to that, um, or applying to be a guest, I now have little little click boxes on the website that people can just, just press and apply. And I've had some pretty interesting people uh, just do that. They've gone on and, and applied. Of course, I can't interview everybody. And I'm to a point where I'm getting so many interviews, I, I really don't know what to do lined up. Like I've got, there's at least 20 or 30 kind of people in the queue who want to be interviewed. But then there's also the people that I want to contact yeah. to add to that. So I've, I'm trying to sort of take from here, take from there. Um, I think that some people don't recognize the sheer amount of work and time it takes. So just because I've said I want to interview someone doesn't mean that will happen for even six months. Like it's, it might have, it might be a while. Um, but I'll try to get to it. But, um, I try to pursue people who are, are interesting, I think to me and the clarinet community, um, whether they be players or manufacturers or teachers, I've tried to get a rather, um, compelling spread of people. But for the second season, I, I, one of my goals is to kind of get out of my comfort zone a little bit and, and, go into things which I'm not as interested in, in the hope of expanding myself, but also of the recognition that not everyone shares my exact beliefs. Not everyone loves new music as much as I do and is interested in freelancing. Um, you know, Edimotic Research was kind of a, a, a one that was very interesting to me. And it actually turned out to be one of the most compelling interviews, but I wasn't sure anyone would like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, I got great feedback on it. But that was an almost selfish one. There, I've used their headphones for over 10 years. They're a fantastic company. I just think they're awesome. I wanted to talk to them, and I did. I found a way to make it work. Um, the biggest thing I would say, that if you're listening right now and you're like, oh, I really wish Sean would, would talk about X, well, then send me an email. One of the hardest things about all this this has been is uh, the feedback. I mean, some people send feedback, but I don't think that most people send feedback, and I don't know why. I think if you if there's someone you want to hear or or talk about or if you yourself want to be on the show, just send an email. Yeah. <laughs> Feedback at clarineat.com or go on the website, click the apply box or suggestion box. Um, it's really that easy. I'm very approachable and I, I, I care that that people hear about things that they're interested in. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, that that means a lot. If if someone contacts me, if I get two or three messages with the same guest name, they move up the queue big time. Exactly. And I've always yeah. I'm always the worst judge. I don't know about you, but I, I'll I'll talk to somebody and I'll put on an episode and I'll think this is going to be popular and I'll put on another one and I never I've never put out anything I'm not happy with like deep but I put out ones that I'm like oh this one's probably not going to be as popular or maybe and man am I wrong more often than not like the yeah, one me where too. I thought like and then that's the one people are writing and that was my favorite interview ever and I think, yeah really and then I've got one that's just a home run and it's like crickets it's, it's fascinating I found that even it, it's not just the big name that draws people, which I originally thought it would. Mm-hmm. It's it's literally the content. Yeah. Um, like if, if people see a compelling title of something that they're interested in, I think they click on it more. Or if it's of a little more interest to a generally broader group of musicians, and especially if the person has had themselves a wider social media presence, mm-hmm. like if they've taken the time to share it with their audience as well it's going to lead to a huge boost of downloads. I mean, for example, Dorico, which just came out, I had interviewed uh, um, Daniel Steinberg, who is, or sorry, Daniel Spreadbury, the company's called Steinberg. Um, I, we talked about their new product and all this stuff. It was really, you know, I wasn't sure any clarinet players would be interested in it. I hope that they were. I hope that they are. 
Um, but man, that that when that was released, it had a ton of downloads on the first three days, mm-hmm. partly because Steinberg had shared it on their Twitter and on their blog. And, um, you know, I got a, also with that a feedback from people who normally wouldn't listen. Oh, this was great. Thank you for asking those those questions. And and uh, yeah, same thing. I, I'm a very bad judge of which ones are going to be popular. Right. It, it's no rhyme or reason. <laughs> So, so before we got on the line, I was editing audio, and that's kind of like the story of my life these days. I'd love yep. to hear how much time, if in general, and I'm not sure what the answer is myself, but mm-hmm. like, what kind of time do you put into each one of these episodes, from research to chatting with the guests to editing to publishing it? Have you got a ballpark figure? You know, it's a lot. Um, and you know, I thought I would be able to streamline it, but that's not happened. Um, it still takes almost as long as it did in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, preparing the interviews, like it's not that I do less research now, but I definitely script it less. I, mm-hmm. I tend to put bullet points of what I want to get through and then just talk and then glance at the sheet about, oh, have I addressed, you know, X problem or question? Um, if not, I should get to it. But I, I, no, I no longer have like a list of carefully composed questions that I that I absolutely need to get through. And I used to do that. I used to pretty much script all my responses. Not only was it a waste of time, but it sounds dull and uninteresting. Um, As far as the editing goes, it's so tough because you want to speed it up. So even sometimes I tried editing the audio at like 60% speed and just racing through. But you go back and you find that the flow is unnatural or, or something. So... And I also used to go through and really make sure to get out all the ums and ahs and breaks and, you know, noises and stuff. And and now, I don't know, I find that takes away something. So I actually am editing less now than I was before, mm-hmm. but I think it's it's making a better um, product. I think it's more interesting to listen to. And it's also a lot less work, the editing itself. Um, but yeah, you know, all to make, you know, all my answers have been really long here. Sorry. <laughs> but it's something I think a lot about. But this, I, I would say every episode takes at least 20 hours. Yeah, 20 to hours. To fully produce. Okay, It's yeah. about, you know, with the blog post that goes with it and trying to market on social media. I mean, maybe I'm delusional. Maybe it's, you know, more than that. But some are less, some are more. It's, it's but, about that. No, that's that sounds pretty good. I, th- I think I've gotten mine down a little bit, but only because I'm, <laughs> this sounds weird, I'm spending probably more than 20 hours doing it, but I'm putting out multiple episodes. So I've, I've started to batch those tasks. So I like, I yeah. just do editing for a few hours, then I do this. But it's a lot of time. It's a, and like you were saying, like editing out all the ums and ahs, for me, it's, it's tough because yeah, if you do too much of that, they sound like a robot, right? Yes. But if you're... If you you want your guests to sound good too, so it's this funny medium where you're trying to like edit some but not too much, and it just it's it listeners uh, shaw what shaw it's a it's a labor of love uh, doing <laughs> this kind of work. So you know, send Sean an email, just thank him for what he's doing because it's it's serious work sifting through this stuff. Well, it, it makes a better episode to do a little bit of editing, though. Yeah. I had one person say to me one time that I don't remember what the context was, that by editing, I'm somehow falsifying journalism again. And, and I, to me, that was ridiculous. I mean, if someone's saying something and then they repeat it and say it again because they made a misquote or something, then it just makes sense to delete that part because yeah. it's wasting everyone's time. If a thousand people are going to listen to the episode and you times those two seconds by a thousand, all of a sudden, there's a lot of time there that has been wasted out yeah. in the universe. <laughs> that is, ex- I love the way you put. That's exactly w- the way I think of it too. And I mean, I've gone. I, the the interview I was editing today, it was started at 55 minutes. I think it's down to 32 minutes. Yeah, that's how much I cut out. And it's yeah. all the good stuff is still in there. So if you take whatever that is and you multiply it by whoever listens, that's a lot. Like you said, that's a lot of time. The universe just listened to restatements and ums and ahs. And people will stop listening, I, I yeah. think. I know I do. When I listen to a show that's way too rambling, mm-hmm. you know, outside of Sam Harris, yeah, because I like the rambling. <laughs> but um, if it's not getting anywhere and there's nothing happening, like, why, why, why listen? Like, I don't understand mm-hmm. what, what's going on. It's just confusing, right? So, um, yeah, definitely. Well, I, I love that you had that list of questions you used to always use. And I did the exact same thing. I had 33 <laughs> questions and they were Whoa. broken down into these. It's like general. And I would email this to everybody. This is back in the early days. And it was like the first yeah. chunk were for everybody. And then it was questions for the educator, 
questions for the performer questions for the universe Uh, yeah and and it the the, another line i can't attribute to but if you if you do a podcast like that anybody could host your podcast right you're not it's just a robot could host your podcast so i've i have trashed that list and i have basically no set questions these days uh, do you have set questions that you no. ask no nothing. no okay not anymore yeah I, I even experimented with this concept of a so-called lightning round mm-hmm. and uh i stopped doing it because i don't like it i, I i'm i don't like running through those six questions at the end i, I think it mm-hmm. feels tacky to me so i've stopped it um yeah. and you know no one has written in asking where it went so <laughs> good riddance i guess yeah. Yeah. but i i did that because many other shows do that and i it's not that i really care i, I don't mind listening to it when it's another another show but I don't like ending my show that way. Yeah. I, I like to just have it a more natural ending, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Wow, we had a great conversation. Let's stop. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. Let's no, no. Why, why drag it on? Um, and there's no standardized questions. I used to actually, I don't know how you thought you'd get through 33 questions. That's insane. <laughs> I used to do 10. 10 questions. And even then, I'd be looking at my clock. It's an hour and 30 minutes in. And, and uh, one guest one time named Ed Jaffe we went on for three and a half hours and I broke it into three interviews mm-hmm. because each kind of covered different topics. But man, yeah, 33 questions. We would have been there for at least a day. <laughs> but man, so like a three and a half hour episode. But that's the to me, that's the beauty of podcasting, because if a conversation, if that's the natural flow of that conversation, how cool is it that you don't have a 22 minute structure that you have to break at the at the 12 minute for commercial and break here? Oh, yeah. You know, and and that's just what I love about the medium of podcasting. And I think when people discover it and they become fans and subscribe, they tend to become super fans, you know, so it's, it's yeah. such a cool way to de- to deliver this real in-depth long form content and it can go on for as long as it as long as it wants so it's it's cool i love that you don't do the standardized questions um do you and and i'm sure it's different for every guest and you said you've changed it more recently but like what's your research process like in general like you know you've got a guest coming up is there anything you tend to do or is it different for everybody how's that work uh it's the most important part um Really, I think it is. And one of my biggest panic moments came ever when I had prepared all my questions for a guest. And then we kind of lost touch for a few months. And unfortunately, I thought I had the questions, so I didn't worry about them. But five minutes before the interview, I went to open up my file just to realize I deleted it. And I really panicked because the preparation um, is so important. I need to know, in a way, what I want to ask them based on my research. Mm -hmm. And if I don't have a summary of my research around, it's, it's very important because I, I feel like I'm not able to address the the points that are needing to be touched on. Yeah. For example, talking to someone like Lori Friedman is totally different than talking to uh, some sort of equipment manufacturer. And the results from the episode are going to be completely different, too. I mean, Lori's going to want to talk a lot about the philosophy of music in a very interesting way and her compelling performance style. I can't ask the same questions to someone making ligatures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like right. it's just not like that. So I really want to get into the company and or the person and learn about the philosophy, what makes it interesting, what might be nice to ask, what's what's new coming up, any new projects. Like I, I try to get creative and, and think of questions that the person when they're asked would be excited to answer, mm-hmm. you know, and it's 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 the main reason I don't start my shows off by going. So uh, what is your what, when did you like? get into music the first day yeah. <laughs> or whatever, yeah. you know, I, I do like to ask, you know, could you give me a summary of what your life is right now? Yeah. Like walk me through a day in the office, then let's get down to business. But because, because everyone is so different. Right. Yeah. Um, but the whole research aspect is so important. And I, I you know, I check out their website and mm-hmm. by the way, people, this is a reason you have to have a great website. Yeah. You have to, you got to have a good bio. There's gotta be something compelling on there. If I can't find anything about you, um, I can't really interview you because I don't if I don't know you already and you don't have a deeply compelling story published in a book somewhere. I mean, what's to talk about? Yeah, you got to put something online that people go, wait a second, that's cool. Or 
I, I don't know. What do you think about that? Oh, it's it's really tricky. The the web presence thing is if they don't have a website, then I turn to Facebook, and sometimes there's not that. And I've had a couple where I'm really stretching, and and what I do, and I wouldn't be talking to, I wouldn't have scheduled something if I didn't think it was worth it. But I've had to go. Usually, those people, it's it's from. A recommendation from somebody else. So my tactic yes. is I turn back to that person that recommended and I say, what would you like me to ask them about? And mm-hmm. I kind of go off of those questions. Uh, but, but that can be, that can be tricky. Uh, I've actually started to do, and I, I, I applaud you for what you've done in terms of your Clarity community group on on Facebook. I think it's really great what you're doing there. And I've started to turn to Facebook also for questions for some guests. I see a guest coming up and mm-hmm. I'll I'll send a message out to my community and say, what would be interesting to cover? And I've gotten some real gems that way. Sometimes I get nothing, but I get some really good questions that way. I can't believe I don't know this, but you can send a message to the community, eh? Well, I just po- I just post to the community. Oh, oh I don't I know see. if I can actually. Okay. Ma- maybe I can't. I should look at that. But I just post something, and people will people will respond with a, an item or two, and I get some good good things that I that I wouldn't have thought of, even going through their website and poking around. Yeah, the research thing is just just critical for me. I use Evernote to collect my yep. stuff, and it usually starts with me like on the couch either drinking beer or coffee depending on the time of day (laughs) (laughs) and i just like clicking around and i'm copying and pasting and i'm not trying to come up with any questions i'm just sort of like looking and and then at a certain point it depends on the guest too sometimes i won't even write a single question and then sometimes especially if it's a more prominent guest i've got i've got potential questions and some of them are in red and some of them aren't because i've interviewed a few pretty high profile jazz people and i just know their time mm-hmm. is really limited yeah and so what you mentioned about uh how would you get started in music i mean it's such an easy way to start an obvious way and, and they're bored of it they don't want to yeah. you won't get them in a very good interesting moment yeah so like it's that. it's all about what's what how can you and even if it's someone who's never done an interview uh this is good but especially with those people who've done a million you just don't want the same interview right so something i yeah. picked up from james altucher is just dive into the most interesting thing first. And I've started doing that the last few dozen. And I never did that before, but I do that. And you know what? If you do that, the early stuff comes out sooner or later and usually in a more interesting light than just the scripted stuff that they would say. Yeah, Uh. absolutely. That's actually Martin Perlick's main point too. Mm. Um, And he comes from a different era where, you know, the real reason to do that is you might run out of tape. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) which we don't have that problem anymore. No, uh, it it is interesting. And the preparation is so weird. I laugh because I I actually, it's the same thing for me. I, I sit on the couch with either a coffee or a beer or something like that. And, (laughs) and I let the ideas and the questions kind of come to me. Mm -hmm. That sounds ridiculous, but I find myself, I I need to just relax Mm -hmm. and listen to their music, check out the product website, but then take note of the thoughts that come to me. Mm -hmm. Like, if I think of something like, oh, I wonder why they, okay, write that down, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. where, where was this recorded? Why does it sound so interesting yeah. or, or something like that? Yeah. So now it's great. I mean, I think that's such a great way to do it. And, and yet someone it, it, with the people that we're talking about, they're probably not going to hang up on us after five minutes, but I, it's, no. but with some interviews, it's like, let's say you're going to interview Kanye West or somebody like that. Well, you might have 90 seconds max, right? So you got time for yeah. maybe one question. I, and that's regardless of who you're talking to, that's not a bad way to start is to start with the thing that piques people's interest. So it's cool yeah. to know that you're experimenting with that, too. It's hard because it's hard to just burst open the door of conversation yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. into the most compelling, compelling thing. But at, at, at the same time, it's, it's a little better than easing into it. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. start with the bang, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's the fine art of warming up your and 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 getting going with the conversation. And it all it's so situational, depending on who you're talking to. And if I if I can tell that someone's more than willing to gab for 90 minutes or two hours, I'll probably start that interview a little bit differently than someone who mm-hmm. I can tell it's like, oh, it's business time for them, like right off the bat. And, and that can be kind of off-putting if you t- if you talk to someone like with they're like, all right, here we go. And then they give you like a real short answer. And do you have you run into that where you, you interview somebody and you get a short answer? Like, how do you how do you kind of open up an interview like that? 
Um, I try to do more digging. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I've done in the past too, this is sort of a behind the scenes <laughs> look is, is sometimes if, if I find the guest was really nervous at the beginning, mm-hmm. which is natural, it's, yeah. it might be surprising to you how hard it is to have this conversation. Uh, if you realize that you're being recorded and it's, if it's your first time talking, yeah. um, like we were saying, we're not so bothered by our own voice and I don't even really worry about what I say. I mean, it's not like it's going to get printed in the New York Times tomorrow that I screwed up a quote or whatever. I, I just it's going out to thousands of people, but it's just this is just what I do now. Yeah. Um, but for someone who's not used to that, it can be very nerve wracking. And so one thing, you know, one secret that I've offered several people is at the end. I've noticed like, wait a minute, the flow has totally changed. They're way more relaxed now. And I ask the first few questions again. Mm, nice. Yeah. And I use those. I use those as the intro. That's a great um, tactic. I need to do that. That's a great. It's very good. Uh, and actually, if I get a response that's short, because you were mentioning you edit out a lot too. So mm-hmm. let, let's say, um, ask me what I had for lunch. Yeah, what did you have for lunch, Sean? Actually, I haven't had lunch yet. I've only okay. had breakfast. But <laughs> I had yogurt. I had okay. yogurt. Now ask me how I felt about what I had for lunch. Yeah. How did you feel about what you had for lunch? Well, it was pretty good, actually. It was fairly nourishing. Like You can get a better yeah. response, right? Mm-hmm. So what I'll do is I then cut out the first question yeah. and the first response and just use the second one. So you mm-hmm. reframe the question. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something you'll, you'll hear from the, the podcast episode, but you'd hear it in the editing studio. You'd hear it in the booth, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, it's just, you, you take something and if it got a one word, word answer, it's actually, it's, I think it's my fault as the questioner. Yeah. That wasn't a good question. So I try to reframe it or even ask it again or tell me how you felt about it or tell me um, why or or something, you know, and that that gets you the answer that you want. And then you can cut the other part out. Well, and that's the beauty of of editing and letting the other person know like, hey, if you want to say anything again, say it again, do this, do that. And then I have the luxury of editing my and I noticed the same thing, too, in my editing software. I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. And I listened to what I asked. And I was like, well, that was kind of a dumb question, Jason. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Do you notice that you can tell the people who have recording experience? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They'll go like, oh, I screwed up. And then they'll start it again, but they'll start from the point that they know they screwed up from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and those yep. people are so golden because I can I can cut out exactly what's necessary. And they knew that when they were saying it. It's, it's a very odd thing. Yeah. I wonder if that happens with non-musicians. I, I don't think so. Well, that, that what you, people with recording experience or interviewing experience, like you said, yeah, it's such a different ball game putting together an episode with them. But you have so many people that this is their first time doing a conversation like this, but they have so much to offer. And I think just oh, like yes. what you do or what I do in terms of editing and giving them final edit, that kind of thing, like to, to it, it, it makes it a real safe environment. Like there's no gotcha. Like neither of us yes. are trying to pull one over on a manufacturer or a guest. It's, you know, the, the point is to share their message, make them look good, bring what they're doing to the wider audience and just having the luxury of editing. I mean, it's a double-edged sword because it means it takes more time for us, mm-hmm. but it gives a better product and it makes it a safe zone for them too. Well, and back to the journalistic thing, when I interview a manufacturer, I'm not digging for dirt. Yeah. You know, I'm not trying to find something that I can then send to a newspaper and, well, here's a story. I found out these people, you know, when they make clarinets, for every clarinet they make, they kill a chicken or, you know, it's uh-huh. it's not like that. I'm not going to find something bizarre, or at least I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I do, I, I would reconsider the whole conversation. But um, but it's not it's not like they're going to be put on the spot and taken off guard. And actually you, you said something at the beginning I found interesting, which is that you offer people, um, the editing, right. And that's something that's, you know, very important to me too. But a lot of people don't do that. Why do you think that's important? Uh, here, I'm turning it around here. <laughs> no, no, it's great. It's great. And it's another thing uh, that I picked up from Tim Ferriss. That's what he does with his guests, too. And it just it just adds that safety layer where if there's something you want taken out, you're welcome to it. And, you know, honestly, I don't if, – if the interview was – I'll tell them, hey, the the interview went great. I'm getting ready to release it. I don't necessarily always send them a, the preview link. It's more like if I can tell they really would like to hear it. With somebody, mm-hmm. they're like, cool, man, sounds good. Send me a link when it's out. Then fine. Uh, but but I, de- I definitely offer that up to anybody who asks. And I, and I do 
at some point say, you, you know, I, if you like, I'll send you a link and you can listen to it and that kind of thing. And I have had to do some extra work uh, as a result of that because people will listen, will listen back and they'll say, hey, could you cut out something at 20 minutes? So then I everything's all posted. So I've got to go back into my editing software and do that. But so it's an extra step. But it's just one of those things that I think it's good karma long term. And you're really if if you make someone not sound that good, they're not going to want to share that with people they know. If you make them sound good, they're going to share it with the world. And with with the type of people that we're talking to a lot of the time, they're not necessarily getting interviewed on podcasts every week. This is something that's going to be referenced back to for years and years. And Mm -hmm. if you think about it in terms of that, it's like, well, maybe I should take out that extra little something and really make it solid and something that they can get behind. Yeah, it's the icing and the glitter or whatever on the cake. I mean, it's not really affecting the cake itself, but it makes for a better cake, you know? Yeah. And like we said before, you can do too much of it. I mean, if a cake is mostly icing. (laughs) I have definitely been guilty of that. And that's like, I remember (laughs) listening back in the car and everybody's words were spaced just this way. Because in my audio editor, that looks really nice. (laughs) But then I realized, no, 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 you got to preserve people's speech and the flow. And it's something you did recently kind of switching gears a little bit is go to the Midwest clinic and live events have been huge for me in my own journey. And maybe just share a couple of things. Why did you decide to go to that? what did you get out of it? What do you see going forward in terms of Clarinet and live events? Well, I'm so glad that we're getting a chance to talk about Midwest. And first I want to just thank all the people who contributed to that. Um, I wanted to go to Midwest because Clarinet Fest had been so successful. Um, actually, I traveled for the podcast, believe it or not, four times in the first year. I went to Penticton, BC and interviewed um, uh, Peter Spriggs. That was fantastic. And, you know, it was just a no-brainer. He lives a, a seven-hour drive for me. My wife and I went out there and had kind of a weekend. We went for dinner. We had a great time. We had just a fantastic connection. And um, that interview was, I thought, really great, too. And then I went to Montreal. Um, of course, I was there to see Radiohead, but I also interviewed Lori Friedman. Now, that interview, unfortunately, has not been released yet. There's some severe audio quality issues which have to be dealt with. Um, we, we, and she's so busy. She's on a European tour now, and it just it has not come out, unfortunately. But then I went down to Kansas, and uh, I also went to Vancouver. So Kansas mm-hmm. was Clarinet Fest in Vancouver. I went and toured Bakun Factory and, and chatted with Maury and, and Joel and uh, I just started realizing that the travel element, that the, the personal element is so important, mm-hmm. you know, also for marketing. I mean, I went down to Clarinet Fest and one of the coolest things was I was handing out my brochures. And although I was kind of let down by this at first, I realized how amazing it was. But most of the time when I gave someone a brochure, they said, oh, this is you're the clarinet guy. Um, and so in a way, I was getting kind of frustrated because I was like, well, I'm not finding anyone who hasn't found this yet. But then I was like, wait a second. How cool is that? I mean, I even ran into one girl who was listening to it at the time that I came up to her. (laughs) And that was so weird. She's like, look, it's on my phone. And uh, I thought that was so weird. But anyways, um, so with Midwest, I really I saw a real opportunity to connect with um, not just some manufacturers, but also like Anthony McGill of the New York Philharmonic was there. And uh, I was like, you know what? I've got to try and get to this. It's one of the biggest band and orchestra conferences um, in the world. And it's definitely one of the I think it's the most well known, um, especially for me where I am. I'm kind of like Canada's, you know, Midwest or far west. Yeah. Um, But uh, it just seemed like such an important thing. And so I, you know, thank God I found a way to crowdfund my way down there. And I'm really thankful for that. And I really appreciate everyone's support for that. Um, and, you know, I got to go down there and chat with at least 10, maybe 15 people who all of whom at some point, once I get my hand back here, all of whom are going to be included in a little video that I, I put together, little mini one to five minute interviews on site. And then the long term plan is to follow up with these people and turn them into episodes. Yeah. So like there's the guy there from Flavor Reads, which is a company that although a lot of people I think don't necessarily agree with, there's a guy who's making flavored reads so that kids can enjoy music more. I mean, what could be a more compelling and interesting and sort of feel good story than that? You know, yeah. he's an old guy. He's nice. He's he's just a nice guy. Anyways, so I ran into Flavor Reed, uh, Reed Geek. Um, Bakun, of course, was there. I helped out at the Pereira 3D booth a little bit. And uh, 
that was a lot of fun. And <laughs> another interesting story about that actually is when I was there working the booth one day, this guy comes up and he's like, oh, that's so cool. I've, I've heard about these on the Clarinet podcast. <laughs> Are you Ryan? And I actually said, no, I'm Sean from the podcast. And he's like, oh, that's and we got into another uh. conversation. But it, it was funny. He'd heard about them from the show. Um, but I also got to meet David Meslanka, composer. Um, one of my old professors, Dr. Glenn Price, who's just released a book on conducting. I look forward to having all these people featured on the show in some way as time permits. So by going down there, yes, the trip cost money. Um, yes, it took time. Um, but I must have connected with at least 30 people, mm -hmm. including two other podcasters whom you also know. Um, but the connections that come from that one event, um, there's actually a problem because there's so there's only so much time in the year. And I feel like I've got a whole year of content just of going there for three days. Right. Right. You know, yeah. so it's uh, it's important and it's it's very it's very it's very it's very good. And it was very interesting. And uh, I guess what I was hoping to accomplish was just developing more great content and, and connecting. Yeah, well, it's it's so and I and I'm bummed that I didn't see you at Midwest. You know, I've eight consecutive years. I went to Midwest. My orchestra actually performed at Midwest in 2015. But well, you lived in Chicago, yeah, right? Yeah, I lived in Chicago. So it was, I, I was, <laughs> I, I literally walked to McCormick Place to do my concert. You know, I lived that close to, to where the convention happened. But so it didn't happen this time, but I would have loved to catch up then. And, you know, the, the live event thing, I've been going to live events myself for the podcast, and there's nothing like that. Per, I think it's even more important these days in our internet yes. world. And even if someone follows along already, like you're saying, you met all these people that already knew of Clarinet, there's nothing like meeting you in person and talking to you. And I look back at this convention I went to in Prague at the end of 2016, and I can see in my podcast numbers before Prague and after Prague. There was this yes. like, uptick in numbers that's never gone down since, and it's from all those connections. And even though most people I ran into, they're like, ah, oh, the contrabassa conversations you know like they knew who, yeah. I, who I was right <laughs> but they but but there's nothing like having that personal connection and talking with the people and they just get more into the the become more true believers I guess yeah no I think it's so important um to, to do that I, yeah. I I really hope I can get out to clarinet fest this summer and, um, you know, the, I'd love to go to all sorts of things, but mm -hmm. there's only so much budget at this time. Yeah, right. Make that happen. Right. Cool. It's exciting. Well, I get I, one more question I have for you is like, what's in what's in store for 2017? You're finishing up these episodes for season one. Season two is going to start. Just g give folks a preview of what's to come. Yeah. Um, so season one, everything's been a bit delayed, as you know, you may or not know from a hand injury I've had. Uh, it was rather severe. It's been about the third week now, and I'm just slowly starting to regain use of my hand, which has obviously made audio editing hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, and before that, I was sick with a really bad sore throat. That It's just been a whole six weeks here of like, I haven't been able to actually do anything. But the worst part for me is that everything's been pre-recorded. So I actually, for the most part, um, they're, the first four episodes of season two are actually done. So I can announce what those are. Um, Andrew Morrow is someone who I know in town and we are going to be trying a new concept of debate episodes. Mm. So basically people in the clarinet community, they've been, I've been posting a question every Wednesday and people debate it. And then Andrew and I, you know, go back and forth and talk about the pros and cons and sort of try and go through all those debate points that people have made. And it's actually really, it's been, it was really fun. It was really interesting. I hope people, people take to it. We're going to try and do that once a month. Um, and then Eric Salazar is going to come on and tell us how he grew his Facebook page, his Facebook artist page, by 6,000% in 2016. Wow. Now, he's a recent graduate, and he now has more Facebook followers than every other clarinet player in the world, except for Martin Frost. And he's getting pretty close. <laughs> wow. So it's unbelievable what he's done. And uh, I uh, can't wait to, to share that. And... Um, also, who else we got? Peter Seglaris comes on to talk about freelancing in a really compelling conversation. He was just great. And uh, the last one in the queue is Clark Phobes. Was that four? Yeah. So Clark Phobes is coming on to talk about his line of barrels and bells and mouthpiece making and playing in movie soundtracks, which was just great. And he lives in San Francisco. No, nice. Um, yeah. So uh, maybe you guys will connect at some point. Yeah. But I've been playing his barrels for many years. 
I had no idea actually that most of his business was mouthpieces. Um, for some reason, I always felt it was probably the barrels. But anyways, four really great conversations. Other stuff coming up. I can't really confirm at this time, but I've been in conversation with people um, ranging from Frank Cohen, Anthony McGill, to uh, having some guests back from the previous year who I said I wanted to do repeats with. And uh, I hope to connect with some more um, symphony artists this year than, than last. For some reason, it just wasn't something that, that really happened, partly because I think those people are just, just so busy. But, but uh, yeah, I'm hoping to have another great, great season and, and uh, bring forward some, some interesting conversations. Cool. Well, I can't wait to follow along. And having round twos is I always love round twos because it's like you got the you got the introductory stuff out of the way and then you can dig deep on some new topics. And cool. Looking forward to following along. Absolutely. Well, thanks for chatting today, Jason. This yeah, was awesome. No kidding. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. If you'd like the chance to win items mentioned on the show, please be sure to head to www.clarineat.com and subscribe with your email address to our mailing list. You'll also receive free content updates, coupons, and more directly to your inbox. If you're enjoying the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can purchase your new and neat clarinet items at the Clarinet online store at clarinet.com store. Or you can become a backer on Patreon at clarinet.com Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Today's episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Didario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds.